Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sporting Dog Talk podcast. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. Today, I am chatting with a fellow named Arlie Reynolds. Arlie has accomplished a whole lot of stuff in his life. He's a veterinarian. He's a accomplished dog musher up in Alaska. He's a senior researcher for Purina, and he's most recently been named the director of the One Health Initiative up there in Alaska at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. This guy has so much interesting information on dogs. It's incredible. I think you're going to love it. And I have an announcement to make. We have uh, we've been putting out this podcast for nearly well, we've been working on it for two years. But we're, we're we're bumping up on like episode close to seventy now, and we made a we made a decision when we started this thing. We said we're going to try to build a really good audience, and we've done that. And we said we want to partner with a few companies to keep the lights on, keep everything moving, and work on some projects we're working on. But we want to keep the intro short. We want to make a deal with you, and so I'm going to do a couple ad reads here. And I want you to please listen to them. And if you're in the market for anything that these companies produce, please check them out. There's going to be some incentives as well, but I want to make that deal with you. And then outside of this intro, we plan to keep these really short. I don't like podcasts with real long rambling intros. I don't personally like mid-rolls in podcasts. So I want to keep these episodes of Sporting Dog Talk as close to what you've come to really appreciate and expect out of us. And we will maintain that. We will do that for you. If you please just listen to these and maybe give these, these partners a chance. And so the first one I want to tell you about is Purina. This is probably no surprise to anyone. Listeners of this podcast know I'm a huge fan of Purina. They were on my short list of companies I really wanted to partner with. I've been feeding Pro Plan Sport to my dogs ever since I've had dogs, and there's nothing that I feel ensures top-level performance better. I think this is because Purina formulates Pro Plan Sport to fuel the needs of all kinds of working dogs and to help protect their joints and muscles so they can keep going for the long haul, whether that's just through training or it's all day long out hunting pheasants or whatever you're doing with your dog. Every ingredient in Pro Plan Sport has a purpose, and that purpose is to help your dog be the best every day. If you want your dog to be running at top speed and stay healthy and have good quality of life, please check out Purina. This podcast is also brought to you by Lucky Duck. Anyone who's listening to this who's been a waterfowl hunter at some point has probably messed with some Lucky Duck decoys. But what you might not know is they're in the crate game now, which is why they created the Lucky Kennel. There's a couple things that I love about this kennel. First off is it's they're made in the USA. That's a big deal right now when you look at what's going on in the world. The next thing is they have a five-star crash test rating from the Center for Pet Safety. That's a big deal too. If you get into a car crash and you got your dog with you, you want your dog in a crate like this so it has the best chance of staying safe. There's a whole bunch of other good stuff going on with these Lucky Kennels too. They have non-slip rubber feet so they don't slide around in the back of your truck, powder-coated tie-downs, a locking reversible door that I really, really like. And one thing that I didn't expect is how lightweight they are. They're they're easier to move than a lot of these other heavy, uh, high-end crates, which is pretty nice because getting them into the motel room when you're traveling out South Dakota or heading down to quail hunt or moving them from the back of your truck into the garage, it's nice to have one that's super durable but doesn't feel like a boat anchor. That's, that's a lucky kennel for you. As an added bonus, they've given us a promo code to give to you guys. So if you're in the market for a crate, please check out a Lucky Kennel. And if you decide to buy one, punch in this code, Lucky, L-U-C-K-Y, 20. That's all it is, Lucky 20. And they're going to throw in a free kennel pad that's worth 100 bucks, which is an awesome deal. As always, all of you listeners out there, Thank you so much. We appreciate you you checking this out every single week, giving us an hour of your time. I can't tell you how much it means to me, so thank you. Come here, bear. I'm dead, bear. I'm dead. That dog is family. Do something with a dog, it, it improves your overall quality of life. Good girl. Arlie Reynolds, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good to see you, Tony. 
So we we finally get to do this. We got to meet last year down in St. Louis, and we we had one attempt at this that didn't go so well last year because of uh, some some technical issues. And now we're all stuck in quarantine, and you're up in Alaska, and we are we are knocking out an episode. And I'm so excited to chat with you. Oh, it's always good to catch up with you too, Tony. There's. Well, before we start this, why don't you just run down a quick list of all the crazy things you do uh, in your professional life? So it'll sort of lay the foundation for what we're going to talk about today. Sure. So uh, I'm a veterinarian. I have a, a PhD in nutrition and exercise physiology, and I'm board certified in clinical nutrition. That's like a, a clinical specialty. Um, I work, I've worked for 22 years with Nestle Purina. Um, working on the sporting dog side of things and also helping dogs deal with stress from a nutritional point of view. Um, I was a competitive dog musher for 30 years. And, um, and now I also work at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and I run their Center for One Health Research. Yeah, so you've got you, – you, in, in our world, you're most well-known for your work with Purina and for uh, canine nutrition – but you're you're dealing with some crazy big issues right now up in Alaska, and this this one health thing is is pretty incredible what you have going on. And it's on the surface, it, it doesn't look like it would tie into our relationship with dogs, but it really does. Oh yeah, for sure. So for those who aren't familiar, one health is the concept that human human health and animal health and the health of the environment are all so interrelated and really interdependent that none of them can be healthy unless they're all healthy. You know, we influence our environment, influences us. This COVID outbreak is actually a great example of that. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, we've done a lot of work um, on the relationship between dogs and humans and how the two can actually make each other more healthy just by the way they interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and so the, the, the One Health concept is – we we aren't divorced from natural what's going on out in nature and our consumptive lifestyle and you know all of the different resources that we're burning up and all this stuff it's it's all intertwined and we we kind of can sit back and look at this and and be insulated from it because we haven't really suffered a whole lot which is you know why you bring up this covid-19 thing like this is this is kind of an eye opener for us this zoonotic disease that jump ship and now has changed our entire lifestyle in a matter of a couple of weeks. And what this is looking at is, hey, if we don't pay attention to what's going on in the world and how we interact with it, we're all in trouble. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Tony. I mean, we had some warnings that this could happen from the SARS and MERS epidemics that happened about 10 years ago, and we didn't really pay attention. And these these types of outbreaks are absolutely the result of the way that we're changing our environment, the way that we're having animals um, live in very, very close quarters with people, and that allows the transfer of this. And also the way that we're able to just travel around the world so quickly. So once this thing gets out, it can spread like crazy. So yeah, um, you know, One Health is is not a new concept. I mean, if you look want to look back, it's been part of indigenous worldview forever, you know. Indigenous people see themselves as part of the environment. And um, I think from a Western perspective, we've kind of gotten a little bit arrogant and think of ourselves as in control of the environment. And then we have something like this or a big wildfire or some other natural disaster. And we realize that we are we really are part of it. And I think that's actually a healthy perspective, because when we when we realize that and play that part, we can actually have a really positive influence. Yeah, it's uh you know, like you, you don't wish for something like this to happen. You know, we were just talking about it off air, but a, it, it, it was inevitable that something like this was coming. And, you know, the, the, the main thing we got to look at is how do, how do we react to this? Like, what's, do we, do we heed this lesson or do we hope we just slide back into the life we were at before and it's coming again and it's going to come again. And we, we have to address this stuff. And it's, you know, I, I, I watched this thing that you guys are producing on this one health and man, it seems so daunting. You know, I, I know you frame it in the perspective of the indig- indigenous people up in Alaska and their relationship to the land. And that's sort of like the the template for how we should view this because they've they haven't divorced themselves from the land the way we have. And they've been pretty in tune to that stuff for thousands of years. And we've we've kind of just let that go. But to to think about it as like, how do we get back there? I mean, doesn't it seem like such a like insurmountable task? You know, 
it, it's a big task for sure, but it's not as insurmountable as it seems. I think that it's really, it is a paradigm shift for sure. But I, I think that it's just a way of us to start looking at the world through a different lens. You know, like you said, um, we are very consumptive and in the way that we approach things. And, and, you know, our economy is built on maximal growth and, you know, we're built on sort of maximal extraction or maximal yields. And that is something that we probably are going to have to change or it's going to change for us like it has with this COVID epidemic. And, you know, when you, again, just to go back to the indigenous perspective, when they make decisions about resources or plans or whatever, they don't look at how it's going to affect them over the next six months. They do look at that, but they look beyond that. Most of their decisions are made in terms of how it's going to affect seven generations. And I think we could take a page from that book. It's not that we don't want to have growth and we don't, but maybe something that's more sustainable and um, look at both you know, our agricultural practices, our industrial practices, our economic practices and those types of things and, and shift that in, in that direction. And, you know, the countries that have done that, Finland is a great example, are actually doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they have found a way to have a strong economy and still be and have a sustainable framework. And so you're, you're right. It is going to take a bit of a change, but I, I think that the, the consequences of not doing it are going to be a lot more painful than the consequences of doing it. And this, this epidemic is actually a great opportunity for us to say, take a step back and start thinking about this and, and start making some changes. And they don't have to be monumental. You can all make smaller changes that, that add up to a lot. Mm-hmm. Isn't it, from your perspective, does it seem surprising or is, is it interesting that we kind of find ourselves looking back and going, okay, we feel like we've progressed so far, but now we're, 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 we're digging back into history. We're, we're looking at people who we don't look as progressed as we, who have progressed as far as we have. And we're saying, what, why, why did they get this right? And we got this wrong. It, does, does it feel weird to kind of be like looking in the rearview mirror for answers? Um, in a way, yes. But, you know, here in Alaska, it's a lot easier to do that, I think, than in other yeah. places. Cause we still live pretty close to land. Most of us still have at least a partial subsistence lifestyle, you know, through hunting and fishing and, and things like that. Um, and there's lots of folks in lower 48 and farmers who do as well. So we're not alone in that. Um, but I think that the difference is, is, is your, your, your perspective. Um, you know, the perspective that I'm talking about, what we're doing is uh, that whole, that old, uh, adage that we don't own the earth. We're, we're just borrowing it from our children and grandchildren. And if we took that perspective, um, we'd still have growth. We'd still be doing things that we're doing now, but we might be a little bit less focused on making sure that we, that the stocks grow tremendously over the next six months. You know, mm-hmm. we, we want to look at a longer period. And, and, and when you do that, it tends to be also more stable. It's mm-hmm. not as volatile. Yeah. It's a, uh... I, anybody who's listening who's like, hey, are you guys going to talk about dogs? We're going to get there. <laughs> so bear with us. But there's a couple of things I want to talk to talk to you about before we get to dogs. And, the, you know, this this One Health thing and the relationship with us to the environment and to nature. Um, do, do you ever read? I, th- I think this was in Popular Science not not too long ago. Do you ever read Popular Science by chance? Yeah. Did, did you read the article about uh, lactose tolerance in the Mongolian people? Do you remember that? By chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I thought that was fascinating because they're sitting there looking at a, a, a specific culture or a specific population of people and going, these people live off a of dairy, you know, a huge part of their diet. And very few of them should be lactose tolerant. It was only like 5% of them. The rest of them should have been lactose intolerant, but they, they have this symbiotic relationship with dairy products and they start digging into why and they go, what they find out is, you know, they've been using these cultures, you know, these specific bacteria cultures to create their cheese and yogurt type products and milk and all this stuff for, you know, for centuries. And it's just closer to the land where they're in, you know, like they're in contact with the microbes in the soil and all this stuff. And it's like, they're not, they're, they're tolerant of their space and their like what what they live with in nature and then they contrasted that to us and we you know we go to the grocery store and buy yogurt that's made from a culture that you know like my ancestors probably never encountered your ancestors and and so it's like sort of they don't know 
that that's good for them or they i mean they probably assume it is but now we're figuring out like hey this is a to b why this is amazing for you and here's where we went wrong and developed these you know diseases of civilization and we're learning from so much of this past and so many of these people who didn't follow the same path as a lot of western people did and it's it's like an incredible experiment going on or an incredible yeah. lesson no it is and you know we have similar examples here in alaska with um Alaska Native people who have relied on marine mammals for their main source of food. They eat an incredibly high-fat diet and high-protein diet, and they have no atherosclerosis, heart disease, or stroke. And that's because the marine-based um, fats are all omega-3 fatty acids, and they're really protective against that. But when those people then switch to a Western diet and eat the same amount of fat, they, they end up with type 2 diabetes. They end up with strokes and heart attacks. So you're, you're absolutely right. When, when a culture has evolved on a certain type of diet, it's amazing how well they, how healthy they are on that type of diet. Whereas, you know, for, for the rest of us, if we were eating seal and walrus and whale every day, we probably would not feel so well. But it's 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 the kind of food that keeps these people healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a it's a weird it's a weird thing that's going on because we're becoming more aware of these things. Now it's like, do we, do we change, you know, cause this is, this is on us as individuals largely. It's kind of like, you know, you and I were talking the other day about sort of the obesity odem, uh, epidemic in people. And it's, it's shadowed by our pets getting bigger and bigger. And it's, you know, it really is kind of boiling down to like, what, what kind of decisions are you making on a daily basis with the, the, the best information we got today and we'll have tomorrow and we'll have next year? Yeah, no, that's actually a great example because we see a really high correlation between obesity and pets and their owners, which I think then goes back to the original sort of construct of this talk. And that is that dogs and people can help each other be extremely healthy um, when they work together on that. You know? And I think when it's done well, it's one of the best relationships in the world um, mm-hmm. in terms of, of promoting health on both ends, you know, and yep. I'm talking about physical health, but for people, I think it's also mental and behavioral health. And, in, in as, you know, up here, we can look at that as cultural health and even spiritual health, and you can take it the whole gamut. Yep. Well, that's, that's something I was telling you about. I'd never, when we started this podcast, you know, we started working on this almost two years ago. I never thought the mental health of dogs would keep coming up. Or for that matter, the mental health of people. And mm-hmm. what we keep coming into is responsible dog ownership leads to happy dogs, which leads to happy dog owners. And it's like this, there's like a true symbiotic relationship on there, but it takes work and it takes effort. It's not just go get a dog and be happy. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, dogs have needs just like we do. And they're not just physical needs. I mean, they, they you build a relationship and a bond with a dog. A lot of it is built around what you do together. I mean, working dogs love to work. And if they don't get to work, they'll find a job. And sometimes that job is not exactly appropriate or, you know, something that you want to do. I remember when I was in vet school, one of my classmates had a border collie and they were, they were gone 12 hours a day and they'd come home and find them hurting the goldfish in the goldfish bowl. But it's the same with hunting dogs. And most of the behavioral issues that we see in dogs relate back to them not being able to do what they were designed and, and born and loved to do. You know? yep. And so I think it is, a bit, like you said, responsible um, pet ownership facilitates that. And when, when you do that, you know, you see this dog do these amazing things. And you've seen it. I mean, most of us who work with dogs are just always so impressed, just blown away by what they're capable of doing. And as a physiologist, I can tell you that their physical capacity is just astounding. But, um, you know, when, when they do that and we're doing it with them, I mean, it isn't just the physical getting out and doing it. There's also a lot of joy involved, I think, which is really good for, for both sides. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in your your world with the sled dogs, you, you know, I've seen the, 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 the trainer wheels that you guys have to run mm-hmm. those dogs in the off season. And it looks just like, you know, out of the 1800s, would you strap a meal to like a, a well or something like that? Or, you know, and send it, you know, this beast of burden walking in a circle. But those sled dogs, that's that's a whole different thing. Their, their motivation in life is to go and to pull. And people would look at that and go, that's cruel. And it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's like saying it's cruel for a goose to migrate or for a Labrador retriever to retrieve or a pointing dog to point. These dogs love to do this. It's it's their favorite. I mean, they'd rather do this than eat, which is strange. But they, you know, when when uh, when I come out in the dog yard and I turn my guys loose, the first thing they do is run to the wheel to see if that's what we're doing, and they'll start running around in circles even though they're not attached to anything. 
And if that's not the case, if we're going on a sled or four wheeler, they come over there and they're just, they're just so jazzed to go that, you know, the four wheeler we use, Tony weighs about 600 pounds and I'll hook um, eight or 10 dogs to it. And I have to tie that four wheeler off to a post that's driven in the ground or they'll pull it away before we take off because they're so excited to go. I mean, Susan Butcher used to say it takes me um, 15 seconds to teach them to go and two years to teach them to whoa. Yep. That's the way they are. And it's it's so much fun when you're running with a group of dogs like that that are just so happy and doing what they love to do. It's your job to take care of them. I mean, there's a lot of responsibility associated with that, but it is it is really the embodiment of joy. Well, I used to race open class sprint. Um, a 16-dog team is as long as a tractor trailer. Okay, so you've got eight pairs of dogs running and they're 60 to 70 feet in front of you and uh, the leaders are. And the only thing you have to control them with is your voice. And really it's not control. It's like teamwork. And when you've trained them right, every dog leaves the ground at the same moment, touches the ground at the same time. And it's this incredible synchronous living, breathing work of art. It's, it's like a orchestra or a ballet. I mean, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. They, they all, it's something amazing to witness and you you hear people um talk about that who've done you've done a lot of mushing where there's like this this zone that you get into with the dogs and everybody's kind of in like it's it's not just a physical space it's there's there's a mental sort of connection going on there that's just it's it's amazing to see it's it's so cool and it's just something that you know like you said if you if you take a dog that's burning, you know, there's probably no dogs working harder than sled dogs when sled dogs are working hard. There's probably nothing out there. And yet that dog would rather run than eat. That's incredible. Yeah. In fact, we have to work on making sure that they get enough to eat because what you mentioned is exactly true, Tony. Um, Good friends of mine have done studies on this and shown that uh, a typical dog running in a race like that, Nidorod, um, for a 45, 50 pound dog is going to burn 11,000 calories a day, which is eight times what a Tour de France cyclist burns on a, on a per pound of body weight basis. It's just an incredible amount of calories. So yeah, you're right. Um, it, it's, but so that is one of the things we train them to do is, is to eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you, so let, let's talk about that for a second. If you, if you have a dog, it, does, is it relatable to humans? Cause I've always heard if you, if you burn 3,500 calories, that's a pound essentially yeah. for humans is it the same for dogs yeah it's exactly the same it's i mean the, the balance is the same metabolically but their metabolic rate is higher than ours for sure yeah. um put that in perspective for you that would be like us eating 80 big macs of the day on a, if we if we bounce it out for body weight okay and i don't think i could do that <laughs> I, I would hope not how so how many calories are you when they're when they're when they're racing how many calories are those dogs getting a day about 10, 11,000 calories oh, okay. a day. So you're just, yeah. you're just keeping them even then. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes we'll start them with just a tiny bit of extra weight in case, you know, sometimes it takes them a day or two for their metabolism and their appetite to catch up with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, it isn't just one meal a day that they're getting three or four full meals a day. And then every hour when they're running, they, they, they there's a stop and they get snacked with a high mm-hmm. fat, high protein snack. So, um, you know, it's, it's pretty constant. Um, this is probably a really dumb question, but we, we've had some canine researchers on here in, in some of the more recent episodes talking about doing MRIs on dogs and, and watching what parts of their brain lights up during, you know, hearing their owner's voice or smelling certain things. And it wouldn't it, there, there's probably no possible way to do that on a sled dog when it's going full out. But wouldn't that be fascinating to see what's 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 lighting up in their brain when they've done you know fifteen miles and they're still pounding away and they they're in that zone? Wouldn't you just love to see that? I would, you know, I really would. And you know, a lot of this comes down to like anything else, how you train them, right? Like what I did, um, sprint mushing. Our our big races were like a human marathon, twenty five to thirty miles of heat, three days in a row, averaging around twenty miles an hour. Okay, so th- think about that: three minute miles, three back to back marathons. And those dogs, they love to go fast. So my job was actually to protect them from themselves and make speed a reward. And when you do that, you, you actually release them to go fast and they love it. It's a, it's a reward for them. Mm-hmm. My buddy, Thomas Warner, who just uh, won the Iditarod, he's from Norway. If you watch the finish line of that, and you can watch it on YouTube, he crossed the finish line after a thousand miles and he broke trail for the last 350 miles from, from uh, Caltag to the finish line. He, he, he was ahead of everybody, broke trail the whole way. 
And when he crossed the finish line, his dog started screaming to go. He's, he's in Nome. There's crowds all around him. I mean, the end of the race, and they're just hammering it to go, to keep going. It's like, why are we stopping, man? So, I mean, it, 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 there's something in them that just love to run. It's, it's, their, it's the biggest reward you can give them. What, what, does that just come from for – for the sled dogs, does it just come from – the breeding that we've put in for that specific purpose and, and breeding for that, or is there something, you know, further back in their genetic history? Uh, it, it's both, you know, they're pack animals like, um, and then the dogs that we have today uh, come from dogs that came off the Chuchi Peninsula in Siberia, along with dogs that were, then that came across the land bridge and, and were village dogs in Alaska that we've mixed in with some of our domestic breeds. So they're a purpose bred dog. They're not a purebred dog. So they have been selected for that, for sure, in the way that they breed. But just like any other great dog, they've got this great genetic potential, but it's our job to train them and prepare them and protect them so that they can do what they love to do and in a safe way. You know, there mm-hmm. there are sometimes people get caught up in racing and they don't get as much rest as they need and the dogs get tired. You don't want to do that because that's hard on their heads and hard on their bodies. Um, so you, you have to have a pretty tight relationship with the dog. You have to be able to read them just like any other type of dog sport, but the people that are good at that, when, you know, it's pretty cool to be one with a team of 16 dogs, all doing the same thing at the same time. And you have almost a telepathic connection with the leaders. It's, it's pretty nifty. It's, it's amazing. But I, I want to back up just a second. I want, I want to hop in the time machine because I didn't, I don't understand what you're saying for part of this. When, when I think about those dogs loving to run and I, I think like, you know, you think about hunting dogs, like, okay, my dog loves to hunt and retrieve, but that we, we frame that in the last couple hundred years of training them to retrieve, starting out with fish and other stuff. And, and, and then, you know, over in Europe and coming here, but do these, do these sled dogs, if you go way back in time, are they following migrating herds of something and running all day long? Is Are they living that lifestyle or is there something? I'm just wondering if you think there's something genetically way back that, that leads them to this. I think if you wanted to go way back, you could say that it's a predator-prey drive. You know, it's part of the hunt. And if you ever watch wolves hunt, they don't just like pounce on something and kill it. It's usually a group effort. Um, it's really well coordinated. Sometimes they're together, but a lot of times they split up. They're usually chasing a lot, like let's say caribou. They're chasing a big herd of caribou. Um, that can take hours to, 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 you know, single out one animal and then get it down. And so um, I think that a lot of it goes back to that. And certainly, I mean, wolves probably, modern day wolf probably wouldn't make a great sled dog per se, but that's certainly the genetic background of many of our dogs way back. Mm-hmm. But not that far. I mean, our sled dogs are somewhat primitive. Yep. Um, but I, I think that's where it comes from. I think it's a predator-prey drive that's just been selected for just like um, pointing is and retrieving is and, and, and a lot of the other things that we do um, you know, with hounds, they're, they're all refining some aspect of that predator-prey drive. Yeah. Do you think then that, you know, we run across some of these obscure breeds once in a while. I'm, I'm not going to name any of them because people will get ticked at me, but there's some dogs that are just known for being slow. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I mean, yeah, some dogs are just burners and some dogs are just slugs. And, you yeah. know, that, that fits into some people's lifestyle because they like a slow working dog. Is that just, you know, like, oh, eventually we were picking out the ones that weren't running 300 yards out from us or a thousand yards out from us. And we go, okay, that dog and this dog are going to breed. We're going to have dogs that might stick closer together. Yeah, I mean, and again, I think it's what you're breeding for. Like, I, you've probably seen this, but I have a good friend who hunts um, roe deer in Sweden. And, and the, the dog of choice for that is a dachshund. Mm-hmm. And, you know, dachshunds have never been known for land speed records. But that's great because what they do is they get on the trail of a deer and they yap a little bit. And it kind of annoys the deer more than anything else because they're – and it, it, what it does, they end up pushing the deer around in a circle right back to the hunter. And the hunter just waits for the – it's kind of like the way we hunt rabbits with hounds. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think that there's the nice thing about it. You know, there's a place for everybody. Um, you just got to find out what they're, what they're good at. Yeah. It's, uh, that, that was one other thing I never realized when I started this podcast is if I said anything one way or the other about a dog, I either got, uh, adoring fan mail or hate mail and uh i'm like hey guys. I, hope I, I hope i didn't cause you any trouble there <laughs> no buddy. no no no. it's just it, you know people are so breed loyal and they you know they have their it's you, you just you gotta let it go uh, <laughs> yeah but the cool thing is i mean if, if you look at most dogs have some kind of purpose and if they're trained to do that purpose it, it 
first of all, I think the dog is really happy, but second of all, it's kind of cool to see. And so a lot of these breeds that, you know, we, we think of as just, um, you know, show dogs, and I don't mean to say just like it's a bad thing. That's the, 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 but a lot of those breeds actually have working purposes too. And, um, but we, we haven't really developed them so much or selected for them recently. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, Jack Russell's are, are fantastic dogs in, in what they do. And, um, lots of the other terrier breeds are, have some really cool attributes, but we rarely use them for that. Anymore. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, this kind of goes full circle back to what we started talking about where, we're pretty lucky because we have the drive to be outside and do cool stuff that lends itself to do cool, doing cool stuff with dogs. And so yeah. do our listeners. So we kind of understand that better than most. But when you see, you know, maybe the general pet market and, and general pet owners that, you know, those, those dogs are doing what their owners are doing, which a lot of times isn't a whole lot. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one place where folks could improve, even if you're, you know, if you're not going to, um, say you have a husky, right? And then you're not going to run the idea route, or you're not going to do sprint racing. Um, you can still give that dog a really full life by going hiking with it or biking with it. Or those dogs need activity, though. They, they are not happy, and they often cause a lot of trouble in the house if they don't have that high level of activity. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't have to burn ten thousand calories a day, but they probably need to burn a couple thousand to, to really um, be content. And, you know, in the process of doing that, the owner is going to do at least part of that kind of calorie burning and it's going to be great. And it really, you know, you, you've seen this yourself when, when you work with a dog in any kind of training or conditioning program, you build a different bond with that dog than you have when you're just home on the couch. And not that home on the couch isn't part of a great part of the relationship, but it's way deeper and it's way, uh, I think, stronger. And, um, you know, it's just a whole nother side of the dog when you can work with them. Yeah. Well, it's, it, we, we talk about this a lot, you know, I mean, that, that relationship of training them and taking them out and, and watching them become what they love out in the field, yeah. you know, for, for most of the listeners here, this is, uh, you know, a bird dog, but we, we're getting letters from, you know, dock jumpers and people who want to do all kinds of crazy stuff with dogs and just get them out doing whatever the dog wants to do. And it's, you know, we, 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 we come to this point a lot with kids where it's like, it, it's the same thing with our children. You know, it's, it's okay to sit on the couch and watch a Netflix movie. It's a lot more fun to take your kids out turkey hunting. Oh, <laughs> you know, like, way it, more. Yeah. And you know what? 20 years from now, they may never remember that film you watched on Netflix. They're never going to forget that turkey hunt. Yep. That's, I mean, I, I think I, I was just talking to a buddy of mine and you can tell, uh, and I, and I want to talk about this with you, um, but you can tell people are, they're they're more cognizant of their mental health and their interactions with their family members and whoever they can interact with right now than maybe we were three months ago. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, my, one of my buddies just called me, and I, I say this because a bunch of my buddies have called me recently, and I can tell they just want to talk because they're bored, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and, yeah. and But my, one of my buddies called me, and he's got a uh, – I think she's five, his little girl. It's her first kid. And I asked him, you know, so how's it going with Natalie? And he's, you know, cause she's by herself, you know, he's got her and you know, she can't play with her friends and stuff. And he's like, I feel like I'm missing the socialization period with my daughter right now. And it scares me. And, oh, man. you know, I mean, it's, it's yeah. interesting yeah. to think about, but it's, it's not, yeah. it's not untrue probably. No, no. But the, the flip side of that is he's also getting more time with her than he probably would have gotten if we hadn't had this and. That could be a really good part of her development, too. I mean, I think in a situation like this, there are there are absolutely negatives, but there's some pretty good um, glasses of lemonade we can make out of these lemons, too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about that. So one of the things that you have really uh, you've become known for being an Alaskan and 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 being closer to that that culture and that lifestyle up there is addressing some of the issues in the the native cultures up there that were traditionally into sled dogs and sled racing. And that was, that was part, maybe not racing, but just part of their life for transportation. And they've gotten away from that. And we don't, we don't hear about some of the, the societal issues and the cultural issues that are going on up there because we're just so far away, but you're, you're exposed to that. And, and you've, you've worked on some of these issues. Let's, let's talk about this. Well, Tony, I was really lucky um, in that when I was a dog musher, you know, I got to travel to a lot of villages and, and race in them and village races are different than the big championship races because um, the whole community comes out and you get to, 
meet everybody, you sit around a fire and talk at night and they're just awesome. And um, I also had three really important mentors in my dog mushing career who helped me a lot um, so that I could become a champion. But they also, um, they use dog mushing as sort of like a metaphor for life. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I've come to realize it now. One of them was George Allen. And if you don't mind, I'll just quickly tell his story because I think it's worth telling. Mm -hmm. George grew up um, on trapline, basically. At the time that he was growing up, there weren't even villages. People just lived a nomadic lifestyle and dogs were the center of that lifestyle. You know, they'd trap in the winter. They'd um, hunt waterfowl in the spring. They'd uh, go to fish camp on the Yukon and, and catch salmon all fall. And then they'd hunt in the fall and then start the trap. So it was a nomadic lifestyle. He lived in different areas, different times of the year, depending on what the resources that you were working with at that time. Well, when George was eight, he woke up one day and his leg was stiff. He had a fever. And uh, so his dad drove him by dog team to Tanna. And um, that's where the regional clinic was. And they couldn't help him there. So he went to Fairbanks and he was diagnosed with tuberculosis and flown to Sitka. Now, Sitka is down in southeast Alaska. It's a thousand miles away from where George grew up, up by the Arctic Circle. And he was he was in Sitka for for 10 years um, until they developed the antibiotics and were able to fuse his right knee and right ankle and cure him of his tuberculosis. So he left as an eight year old kid, he comes back as an 18 year old young man. Now his family settled in the village of Huslia and, you know, he's missed out on trapping, fishing, hunting, training that he would have gotten for 10 years. And he just doesn't fit in. And he, he had suicidal ideation. He, he was really depressed, but he had a real talent with dogs and the elders in the village saw that and helped him with it. And he went on to race. Now, here's a guy who can't move his right leg. OK, he went on to become the winningest dog musher of all time. Um, and you know, when he retired, he moved back to his village and was distraught to see how many kids were really struggling with substance abuse, um, how high the suicide rate was that they weren't graduating a very high rate from, from high school. And so he instituted this program with the elders and with the um, school board to, to bring dog mushing back. You know, when the snow machines came in the seventies, um, a lot of the dog teams went and with that went a lot of the structure of life there. So we started this program, um, and I, I won't go into tremendous detail, but it was amazingly successful. What it did is it, it allowed the young people to learn about their traditional ways from their elders, which is always done through oral communication and doing things. You don't pick up a book and read that. You do it. Mm -hmm. And it, um, it also gave the young folks, you know, they were kind of plugged in electronically and not spending much time outside. It gave them an opportunity to be outside, to do something that gave them uh, some self-esteem and self-efficacy and also praise from their parents and elders and, and support from their village. And also, um, you know, I think anybody who's listening to this podcast who has a dog can understand you can have the worst day of your life at work or whatever. You come home and your dog is happy that you just exist. I mean, they're, the best thing that happened to your dog all day is that you came home and, and they're so happy to see you and they can really help young people, especially, I think, manage some of these issues that lead to substance abuse and suicidal ideation. And this program was so successful in Huslia that it's now moved to 17 other schools in the interior. And we're trying to move it to other places in the state and use it as a model for, you know, suicide prevention and substance abuse prevention and, and enhancing high school graduation rates. And, and, you know, it's, it's all about the kids working with the dogs. That's, mm -hmm. that, that's the thing that really, and it didn't just transform the kids, it transforms the whole village. I mean, the entire village becomes healthier when, when the pro because they all work together on it. Well, that, yeah, it, I want to back up a second in that story. When you talk about snow machines coming into the picture, I'm sure you know living in living in those places in Alaska, they looked at this and went, "Holy cow, our life is about to get a lot easier." And yeah, what they exactly. didn't see, I, I when you when you're telling me that story, and I you know I'm familiar with George's story, I keep thinking like. We get social media and we think, oh, we're connected to everybody. This has to be a good thing. And what we see is a brag fest that actually sort of isolates us and gives us these inferiority complexes because we see this this totally BS <laughs> picture of right. people's lives instead of having a conversation. And so that the, the snow machines coming into their life and essentially replacing those sled dogs, I'm positive felt like a good thing for them. And mm -hmm. they just didn't realize what it was going to do to them and, and how it would take away that purpose around, you know, maintaining and taking care of these dogs. I mean, it's, it's an incredible lesson. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, dogs really set the structure for life. I mean, you get up in the morning when you live in a rural area like that. You get up in the morning, you build a fire so you can melt snow and cook for the dogs, right? And then you go out and you train the dogs or you run your trap line. And then in the evening, you build another fire and cook for the dogs again. And, you know, when you're out on the trap line, you're living rough. The dogs are keeping you warm. You know, they're, um, you're just with them all day long. And, you know, that's how people uh, in some places now still travel from, you know, from cabin to cabin or village to village because gas in the village is now with oil prices low. It's not the same, but uh, oftentimes $10, $11 a gallon in rural Alaska. Plus, you know, one thing a dog team never does is is, is um, quit on you, right? I mean, you don't have to worry about fixing it. It doesn't break down. They just go. And um, snow machines do, and they can leave you really stranded. Um, and the other thing is, if you have a dog team, if you want to work and you live in rural Alaska, you can feed it. You can fish all summer and feed your dog team all winter. And, um, you know, the problem with snow machines is they cost eleven, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, and then you got to pay for the gas and the repairs. And all of a sudden, you know, Keep in mind the average income of a rural Alaskan household is around twenty thousand dollars a year. So all of a sudden, um, if you're willing to put a little effort, dogs are still pretty economically and, and socially feasible means of transportation, mm-hmm. and they are actually coming back, which is kind of neat to see. Well, it, it, uh, it, it's weird because there's you know there's a fiscal driver right there, like there's there's a there's a financial incentive to bring this back but the you know just having more money in their pocket isn't changing the suicide rates and it's not changing the purpose that these people feel right right yeah you can't throw money at a problem like that but the government's tried it for decades and solve it because you got to understand where it comes from and that's where one health kind of fits in right none of these big problems that we face whether it's food security or um, you know uh, suicide prevention or substance abuse prevention they don't have one cause, right? I mean, you have to look back in time and see why people are feeling so disconnected and why it is they, they are struggling like this. Um, climate change is a big part of it here. You know, it's really affecting subsistence lifestyles. We rely on, on uh, rivers for transportation in the winter and in the summer um, because keep in mind that less than a third of our state is accessible by road. So we have hundreds of communities, some of which lie four or 500 miles off the road system. And when the rivers don't freeze in the winter and it's not safe to travel, that really cuts you off. You really get isolated. Um, and it's really expensive to fly things and you can do it, but it's super expensive. So, um, you know, hunting and fishing in most of the rural parts of Alaska is still the main way that people get their food. And the access to that is really being um, challenged right now by climate change. It's affecting salmon runs, caribou migrations, um, people's ability to get out and hunt and fish. And so, um, you know, it's a, and that's a challenge. And then you lay on top of that, you know, the introduction of things like alcohol and drugs and, um, and diseases and, um, and also the change in their economic structure and, and educational structure. And, and there are good parts of some of those and there are some bad parts of some of those. And I think it's a, it's a challenge to try to find a way to balance things. So, you, you know, people aren't going to go back and live like they lived 200 years ago. They're just not. They're going to yep. have Internet. They're going to have the other things that we all want. But they can hang on to the things that make them who they are. And the dogs really help with that. Indigenous cultures, most of them are here in Alaska, are based on a, a, a bond with dogs. And when you, when you can reestablish that, I think you, you can add a lot of healing. It just, it's just not like it cures everything, but it sets up communication with the elders, which really helps in terms of your history and knowing who you are and gaining skills that make you feel good about yourself. Um, and it also gives you somebody that you got to get up every day and take care of and build yeah. a fire for. And so, you know, you're not just in your room when it's dark and cold and never coming out. There's someone else that's depending on you and wants to see you and is happy to see you. And that makes you happy too. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it, it's given them a purpose, but it, it's kind of, this goes back to the Mongolian <laughs> lactose tolerance issue. Like even if, you know, if you went back 500 years or 700 years ago or 100 years ago, they wouldn't be able to describe what we know now as far as, uh, you know, some of the chemical reactions in, in my brain when I pet a dog and some of the chemical reactions in a dog's brain when, when it gets petted and that kind of stuff. And we, we know that stuff now, but it was inherent in that relationship. It was understood at, at, for, you know, 
centuries without yeah. having to be defined. Now we can define it and say, hey, this is this is what's going on here. And yet we still kind of got to look backwards and go, okay, what what are we dealing with in society? What are, what are these diseases of civilization that we're dealing with? How are the ways that on an individual basis or a, a small community basis, we can we can remedy some of this stuff or at least start to right the ship? And it seems crazy, but working with dogs is doing it there. There's a lesson there. I agree with you, Tony. It, it, it is. And I think what it does is, it, you know, when you work with animals, first of all, you have to be present, right? It's like you can't be on your phone or, you know, and working on your computer, you have to be present and it, 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 it makes you more aware of what's going around you. I mean, um, and I think this is more challenging in an urban slash suburban environment, but you know, in, in rural areas, you know, we're used to looking at the sky and seeing what the weather's going to be and trying to figure out how we should dress and do things. You know, we, we realize how big an impact the environment has on us. And, um, and I think a lot of this is just being more in touch with who you are. And, and that's a, something that we kind of lose out on, I think, a little bit if we get too much into, you know, the uh, the electronics that, that, that kind of are running our lives right now. And yeah. dogs help pull us out of that. They help, you know, a dog, you're never going to see a dog whip a phone out of their pocket and say, just a minute, I got to text my buddy. here." You know, the dog is, is wants to interact with you. And he, he, they get a ton of um, their, I think, their, if you want to call it happiness, however you want to describe it, but they get a ton of what makes them you know, uh, feel good and, and, and gives them a reward out of, out of being in, I mean, that's how they're hardwired to do that. And we actually, I think are hardwired to do it with them. Mm -hmm. I really do. I mean, if you want to go back to an evolutionary point of view, it wasn't very long after we became what are we now call human, um, that we, we brought dogs into the fold. And it's really interesting because, you know, you were talking about the Mongolian stuff. You can look at dog genetics too. And they have a very different set of, of genes that, that um, code for the digestion of carbohydrates, which is not a normal part, a very much of a normal part of a, a wild dog, like a wolf's diet, right? But, but our domestic dogs have in their salivary glands and in their pancreas and the lining their intestinal tract, they've got uh, six or seven more sets of digestive enzymes to help digest carbohydrates as a direct result of selection because they joined us and we were beginning to become farmers. And, and so they, they actually are pretty good at digesting grains and things like that. Um, whereas wolves are not, you know, so, so we, it's been a long evolutionary chain and that's just a physiological example. There's of course a whole lot of behavioral examples too, but um, we have quite a history together. And I, I think we are really hardwired. They helped do so many things for us. That's why we brought them in, you know, protection, warmth, transportation, all these things, hunting, providing resources for us. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing when you start digging into, you know, what what humans were doing here maybe 10,000, 15,000 years ago and, and how they were, you know, there's mass kill sites of, of certain animals and how you just think about like, you know, we, we've had a bunch of guests talk about their, you know, kind of their theories on how we co-evolved or how wolves came to be, you know, a part of our life and you just can't divorce it from the fact that we we at certain points in history figured out how to kill a lot of animals at one time and that was yeah. going to attract dogs you know what i mean yeah. to attract canines but, but that 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 genetic lesson there or the, the example you just gave of the carbohydrates and the ability to handle it that's something that I don't think a lot of people understand. And I think, I think there's a lot of, I, I really want you to address that because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, people will see corn used in, in dog food and go, well, dogs don't eat corn. And then you, you know, but when you sit out there and watch coyotes go through the woods and you watch them eat an apple and they eat grasshoppers and then they eat a rabbit, like, and then now when you saying that about, you know, in the last however many thousands of years, they've developed the ability to utilize that food source because of us. Because they live with us, right. And, and the dogs that were able to do that type of thing thrived more. Mm -hmm. particularly in agriculturally based um, cultures, you know, so about the time we started depending on agriculture as at least part of our livelihood, um, that's when domestication really took off. I mean, people think it was, you know, when we were more of the hunter gatherer type, and certainly there was some domestication there, but I mean, in terms of diversity of breeds and 
and different functions that it was the agricultural part that really developed that. And yeah, that, I mean, there are several really wonderful papers, both from a highly technical looking at the genes point of view, but also from an anthropology looking at the relationship between dogs and people and why this happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that getting back to what you said, and I don't want to get on a pedestal here, but that whole concept of grain-free diets is really more of a marketing thing than anything else, because there are people certainly that have allergies to the proteins we find in grains, you know, so that need gluten-free diets or, um, but there are only one or two very rare lines of dogs that have actually been demonstrated to have that issue. By and large, most dogs digest um, starches if they're cooked well, very, very well, and don't have problems with gluten. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's the, the, the breeds where it's been demonstrated, in, and these aren't all the dogs in that breed, certain lines of Irish setters have had a, um, are kind of the classic example of the dogs that have a celiac-like disease. What, where does that come from? It's just a genetic mutation that they lost the ability to digest it. Um, and it's in that one, that line of Irish setters. It's not in all Irish setters. Hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I, my point is that for most dogs, it's like, you know, you obviously want them, if you always want a balanced diet, but uh, well cooked uh, grains is actually fine. It's something they're well adapted to. And you've probably seen the problems that have been associated with grain free diets over the last few years causing heart disease. Um, so sometimes when we mess with something, we don't always make it better. Well, yeah. And you know, the, the takeaway there is we, we kind of like to, as in society, we kind of like to talk about dogs like, oh, this is, this, this guy was a wolf not long ago. Well, it was a long time ago. (laughs) And it was a long time ago. You're right. Yeah. And they're they're not wolves. No, they're not. They're dogs and they're wonderful. Um, wolves are wonderful too, but I wouldn't want one living in my house. Um, no. no, they're, they're different. They're, they're just yeah. different things now. Um, when you, when you say that about the, the genetic variations that have come along with, uh, you know, this, this coexisting with humans, the symbiotic relationship we have and that their ability to digest carbohydrates, knowing what we know about coyotes and how they've expanded from the Southwest and now they're. Very, like they're adapting very well to not only suburban environments, but urban environments. Urban. Do you, yeah. Yeah, do you yeah. think we're going to see something with them? You know, I mean, obviously you and I will probably be dead by the time this happens, but I wouldn't be surprised at all. And it, and it may not be, it could be within our lifetime because the thing about adaptations like that, you know, um, there are mutations that are happening all the time and all it takes is for one of those mutations to lend an advantage. And then that, that animal is going to, they're, their offspring are going to have an advantage that allow them to compete better than others. So it could happen very quickly because they have a pretty, pretty short uh, reproductive cycle. And you know, coyotes are amazing. They're super smart. It'd be really interesting to look at that, like urban coyotes versus, you know, ones that are in really remote areas and also compare them to these studies that were done between wolves and domestic dogs. Cause you might find that they lie somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, that it makes me think. We we just had this woman, Amritha Malakarjun, is her name, and she studies how dogs hear or how canines hear, and you know, in in what types of environments do they hear best, and how do they pick out certain inflections in your voice and that kind of stuff. And that's that's kind of her area of expertise. And I've heard stories about canine researchers with watching coyotes in urban environments and how they. You know, they'll stand in, you know, in the bushes by the edge of a highway and listen to the traffic and the ears are moving and they know how to listen to that environment and go, now I can cross. And I just wonder if you're going to see all kinds of adaptations with them going from, you know, in their history, it wasn't that long ago where you found them mostly in in the Southwest in the deserts kind of area. Now they're all over the place because we pushed them out trying to kill them. And now they're living in in places where you would think there'd have to be like some real, you know, adaptive advantages coming just from the, the, the variety of environments. Yeah. And I think some of that will be genetic for sure, but some of it will be learned um, or environmentally based changes. Yeah. Coyotes are incredibly adaptive. I mean, they really, really are. I, I, uh, I'm really impressed with what I've seen them do. And um, we have them here in Alaska too. So um, yeah, they're, they're fun to watch. Is it, they, have they always been in Alaska? They haven't, right? I'm not sure about that. I mean, uh, I'd have to check. I, I, I'm not sure. But they called for years. They used to call them brush wolves, yep. you know. But they're and they're not wolves. No, they um, they do they do a really good job of surviving. <laughs> they yeah, no, they thrive in almost any environment. They're really good at adapting, 
And I think it's almost easier for them a lot of times to live in suburban and urban areas because um, once they figure out the food sources, it's actually probably easier for them to get food in those kind of areas. Yep. Yeah, I think I think this. There's a fellow out there. I think his name is Justin Brown, um, who's a who's a really well known coyote researcher. And listening to him, I've listened to him on a few podcasts. His information about studying them in Chicago and in L.A. It's like wild what's going on out there. And I, you know, I I always think about this stuff. I mean, I know we're kind of veering off track here, but my, my wife is on all these uh, these Facebook pages where you know it's like neighborhood, you know neighborhood yeah, yeah. watch type crap but it's like everybody has those ring doorbells now where they can see or you know everybody has the the ability to film with their phone and we live in a place where you know we're in the suburbs of the twin cities and so to really get into where minnesota has a lot of bears we're still probably you know two two and a half hours south of that and and really in an environment that you know in habitat that's not conducive to a lot of black bears but this time of year they show up and they're in people's garbage cans and she's just like every day she's showing me videos of bears digging into people's garbage cans or walking by their front porch in a place there's they're really not supposed to be and i it's just such an eye opener for the amount of stuff that's going on out there that we're we're just not aware of like the amount of things. And it, it made me think like that one health, w- the, the video that you sent, I'm just like, man, the, the stuff we don't know, it, it, it's almost like it, it makes you just want to shut down when you start to think about all of the things we have left to learn. Yeah. And I mean, getting back to one health, uh, thanks for bringing that up. The, the beauty of one health is that we realize that not one discipline, you know, is going to help us understand these problems. So the whole idea there is to bring in, you know, veterinarians, doctors, ecologists, climatologists, social scientists, geologists, people with who know an awful lot about their discipline, but they don't know what they don't know. And when you bring them all together, all of a sudden you've got both depth and breadth of knowledge. You can really understand problems. And then you bring in, you know, indigenous folks who have 10,000 years of traditional knowledge of the land. And you add that to the Western science. And we do this thing that we call co-production of knowledge, where you bring those two together. And holy cow, then you can really understand problems and try to go after their root sources rather than do what we usually do, which is put a Band-Aid on the outcome, right? You know, we're going to, like this virus, for instance, we're going to develop a vaccine and that is going to help. But it wouldn't it be great if we could figure out where the next one was going to come out and stop it before it ever becomes a pandemic. Yep. And, and in order to do that, you need to understand why they put, the, why people have these wet markets in China and, and what they're doing there that's, that's causing this to happen, how to increase biosecurity there while still maintaining their access to traditional food. Because if you take that away, the black market's going to jump up and yep. it'll be worse than before. So it's, it takes a lot of collaboration. It takes a lot of cross-disciplinary and even cross-cultural work together to, to make something like this happen. But I think that's the way we need to be thinking nowadays. Mm-hmm. Well, it, yeah, I mean, if there, was, if there was anything that comes out of this, it's an awareness of how globally connected we are and how – there's no such thing as other people's problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's yeah. all ours now. I mean, it, there's there's nothing. Anything that happens anywhere out there could could end up on your doorstep now because of how connected we are. Right. Which which, in the one hand, is scary, but on the other hand, is an opportunity for us to really start collaborating better and and thinking along these 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 actually older lines of thought, more traditional lines of thought. Um, I I think we can. I think. We can make this place a better place for our kids. I really do. But I think that we can't keep going the way we've been going. And I'm hoping there will be a bit of a paradigm shift after this. I hope this is a wake-up call. Do you think it will be? For some, and hopefully for enough. Where I think the big change needs to come, Tony, because I think the people who are my age and older are probably without, um, you know, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. But I think if our kids and the younger generations can become engaged in this and understand that this, this world's going to be passed to them and it's their responsibility. And I'm not talking about putting a load on a five-year-old, but I mean, start teaching them to understand these, these relationships at a younger age. I have, I have a lot of hope for, for the yeah. future. I, I, I do too. And I, I look at this, um, you know, I just went through this with my little girls where, you know, they both shot turkeys and they were stoked, right? I mean, they were like, you know, they, they're they're flying pretty high. But I'm trying to get them to understand, like, not only, yeah, that that was cool, but you killed something. Like this, it's yeah. not nothing. You killed something that wanted to live, and yeah. we are going to eat it. And we have to think about this in 
in, in as much of its entirety as we can come up with, you know, and it's that, that that's one thing I, I hope about just just this phase we're in with society and general knowledge right now with dogs, with ourselves, with everything is we can sit here and look at, you know, where where does my dog food come from? Like what yeah. what's what's what goes into creating that this salmon I buy at the grocery store? Where did this come from? And what are they like? I, I hope we just pay attention better to all of this stuff and go, you know, like, like you said, just just be a little bit more responsible, a little bit more aware of what's going on in the world and how we can make it a little bit better. Yeah, little changes add up to a lot. You know, I can tell you, like from like the Purina point of view, I worked with I worked with them for a long time. They look at the sustainability of all the food sources that they use and try to be as both economically and environmentally sound as they can. And they have opp- opportunities to go for lower cost ingredients or, you know, um, things like that. And they always try to go for the sustainable ones, um, particularly when it comes to things like resources like salmon or things that come out of the ocean and things like that. So, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I, um, but I think that it's going to be our younger generations that can make these changes. We can help them um, learn about things, but they're going to be the ones that are probably leading the way. Yeah. Well, and this is, you know, th- that point there with, I did, I did an article for Wildfall Magazine a couple of years ago on that sustainability initiative at Purina. And the one thing we're learning right now, to some extent, or we're having the, the one thing that we're sort of having reinforced to us is you get what you pay for. And so we like cheap Chinese goods for a long time. And now we're going, maybe, maybe we should be manufacturing some of our medicine here. Maybe some of our, uh, so we we should be bringing some of this stuff back, and if we have to pay a little more for it, maybe we can sleep a little better at night. And we're we're just we're just getting a lot of lessons out of this. I know I know we veered way off course a whole bunch of times here. I knew we would. Um, I want to bring this wrap back around and wrap this up with you, Arlie. In the world of dogs, and all you've studied and all you know about it, what's the one question you hope gets answered about you know dog behavior, dog nutrition? There's some some question you've got about. What you know that you've thought some theory or something? What's one thing you hope gets answered before you before you're pushing up daisies? The one thing you finally can go, that's right or that's wrong or I always thought that. Man, that's a that's a tough one because you know uh, never run out of questions that you want to ask. How about top you know? three then? <laughs> well, one of the things that we've been working on a lot lately um, is to try to help their immune system work better from the time their puppies all the way through. Cause we think that that'll lead to a longer, healthier life mm-hmm. and to do it in a natural way, you know, not just with um, drugs or anything like that, but to actually understand how their immune system works. And when you do that, the other big thing that you have to pull in with that is how their microbiome works. You know, all the bacteria in their body, particularly in their intestinal tract, it's such a complicated ecosystem in and of itself, but it directs their behavior. It, it directs, their body weight, it, it directs their immune system. And of course it directs their digestion and absorption. And there's so many things that it has a, even their skin and it has such a, a huge impact on. So getting a better handle on that and how we can help the dogs keep that stable and structured in a way that promotes a healthy long life. I mean, I think one of the things we would all love to see the biggest problem with dogs is they don't live long enough. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get so attached to them, they get to do, we have this perfect dog that does everything and then, um, and then they pass. And um, I, I'd love to find ways to keep them healthier and not just prolong their life, but keep them healthier longer into life so that we get as many great days out of them as we can. Yep. The, the, so the, the, the gut microbiome, you know, we're learning a lot about humans in this capacity. And, you know, this goes right back to the Mongolian culture we're learning about dogs in this capacity too and in how many different ways they're the you know the the bacteria inside of them is affecting everything that's going yeah. on in in their moods and in you know digestion and skin health and all the stuff that you that you mentioned do you think you know maybe 10 15 20 years down the road they'll be uh you know, breed specific probiotics or some kind of supplement with probiotics in it that we we can look at and go, okay, I have a lab that comes from, you know, these genetics, this lab needs this strain of probiotics to be the healthiest. Do you think we could get there? I I think that something like that is likely. I I don't know if if it's necessarily going to be along breed lines. It might be. I think it's more likely to be along health lines. 
so that if you have a, a, a dog or a breed or, um, you know, uh, that has a, a condition like is prone to say a certain skin condition or a certain anxiety, we already have um, actually probiotics that work on anxiety. Yep. Um, if you have a dog that has a problem with a certain digestive disorder or a certain um, immune function disorder, um, that you could use a certain, there might be one probiotic or a mix of probiotics that would help um, help straighten that out. You know, the, the, there's such amazing communication between the gut and um, and the immune system. About 80% of all of your immune cells live in your gut, but they communicate with the immune cells that are in the entire rest of your body. I'll give you a great example of this. A friend of mine did a study um, where she looked at women who were nursing. And nursing women will have a type of a white blood cell called a macrophage that normally eats bacteria and kills them. But in this case, they identify good bacteria like lactobacilli in the gut, phagocytize them but don't kill them, enter into the, lacti- the, the lymphatic circulation, end up in the mammary gland, get secreted in the milk, the baby nurses them. When that, when that macrophage gets into the stomach, the stomach kills it and it releases the live bacteria that then become probiotics for the newborn baby. And I mean, very that that macrophage is designed to only get that type of bacteria. It's only going to take the good guys and specific ones. So I mean, is is that cool or what? It's amazing. And it, yeah. is, isn't that isn't there something similar going on with our knowledge as far as pregnant dogs and and probiotics and litter health and that kind of stuff? Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, the, the problem is that we're looking. <laughs> We're, we're putting a few drops into the ocean right now and trying to raise its level. This is such a complex ecosystem that's so big. We're learning tons and we have so much more to learn. And so that's an area that I think is going to just really explode. Um, you know, there's, we have so many tools now that are helping us understand better, you know, what these bacteria are, why they change, what they're starting to do. But, but it isn't just, you know, you can't just look at one strain because there's so many different ones and it's not just the individual bacteria, but their relative populations. Mm-hmm. And how healthy they are and how healthy the gut is and how that's being influenced by the immune system. I mean, it's just a very, very complex environment, but it's it's really cool. It's it's incredible. I mean, that that lesson with with breastfeeding women, I mean, it's it's amazing. And that that's one thing. <laughs> like yeah, you right. know there's, you know, f- probably thousands of biological processes like that going on every day that, that we, we're probably just not aware of yet and don't you're understand. Right. You're right. And that's great because it means there'll always be something new to learn. And, um, <laughs> but it's all integrated. Just like, I mean, you can think of the body as an ecosystem and then us. And I think that's the last lesson of One Health is that we are part of this e- ecosystem. And we mm-hmm. play a really important part because we have so many ways that we can influence it. And if we can influence it to be healthy, things could be really great. Mm-hmm. Really great. That's a great sentiment to wrap this up on, buddy. Arlie, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I had a blast talking to you. Well, great to see you, Tony. I hope we, uh, we get to do some fun stuff together soon. We will. All right. You take care. That's it for this episode of Sporting Dog Talk. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. And of course, if you liked what you heard on this episode, please, please, please subscribe. That helps us out so much when we get to see the support from our audience. And lastly... Thanks for listening.